Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome again, everybody. Hope you're all healthy and safe and doing what you can to enjoy the holiday season. Mark and I have a couple of very special guests on this episode, really perfect for baseball fans and for those of you looking for a truly special holiday gift idea. The former president of the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, Jeff Idelson, is with us, and he's sharing his stories and the stage with Gene Fruth, one of baseball's preeminent photographers and with whom he's collaborated on a brand new project that we think you're going to love. Mike, today's episode is a little bit different, but I love the aspect of what we're going to be talking about. It's about pictures really telling the story about the global game of baseball, and can't wait to hear these stories. Well, Jeff, let's start with you and your 25 years in the Hall of Fame, 11 of them as president. You're living and you're working among legends and, of course, ghosts of greatness. Almost unfair, really, to ask you to distill your time there into one singular snapshot, but if you would, share with us what you feel is perhaps the most memorable moment of your time there? Oof, that's a, that's a quite a loaded question, Mike. Mm-hmm. You're right, a lot of great memories over 25 years with the living legends and the ghosts of them. But I probably I would have to, I'd have to say, Mike, once I got uh, elevated to president in 2008, um, and uh, it was an incredible honor to have that opportunity at the Hall of Fame growing up a lifelong baseball fan. But then to have that first summer, my, uh, the first induction I oversaw was a guy that I had worked with in New York and had great respect for, Goose Gossage, earning election uh, and sharing a stage with Goose uh, and presenting him uh, with his plaque. And then the, the following year, to follow that up with two more guys, I worked with Ricky Henderson. Uh, in New York before we traded him back to Oakland in 1989. And then Jim Rice, who I dated back to 86 with, and having a second shot at it, again, with guys that I grew up with in the game was really meaningful. And uh, hard to pick one, but that probably stands out as the uh, best times. Jeff, uh, uh, growing up in the Northeast, as I did as well, um, uh, watching the Red Sox, you actually, as a kid, grew up a, a Red Sox fan, got to work at Fenway Park, also worked with the Yankees. He stayed in the Northeast. Was it uh, a goal um, of yours to to get to eventually get to Cooperstown? How did that work out for you? No, that'd be more like a goal of yours as a player, maybe, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I was just happy as a guy who couldn't play to be involved in the game in any way. And I just, it's funny because. Um, I knew right away when I started with the Red Sox in 86 that I was really comfortable there. I mean, the the thought about being at a ballpark every day and spending time outdoors and being with the media and and media relations and PR was where I was, was uh, where I wanted, where I wanted to be. But being at the ballpark was all I cared about. And the Red Sox didn't have anything for me on a full-time level. I was interning. I was producing their radio broadcast with Ken Coleman and Joe Castiglione for a couple of years and doing everything I could interacting with the Jimmy fund. And I just wanted to stay involved in the game and excel and, and grow row and I vowed I go to any of the uh, other uh, any of the 22 teams any of the other 22 teams excluding the Yankees because as you probably did Mark I grew up despising the Yankees and, <laughs> exactly you know Bucky Dent was the protagonist in my life for a long time <laughs> as a 13 year old when he hit that home run so uh, but sure enough the Yankees came calling and I and I went there and uh, you know had that great opportunity to realize that baseball was more than any one team it was uh, it was a part of what I wanted to be and it didn't matter where I was and and then the Cooperstown came calling, and I was at a point in my life where I was ready for a change. And, I, you know, I thought, why not give that a shot for a year? And one year turned into 25 years, and uh, I'm just happy I got all those experiences. We've gotten to know you, it seems like, through television, all of us as fans of the game, right? Because every time there's an induction weekend, there's Jeff Idelson front and center, 
leading the charge. It looks like this glamorous job, at least in the prism of one weekend. But what's it really like being the president day to day? Oh, it's probably even more glamorous than, than that one weekend, Mike, because it's, I mean, you're dealing with the greats of the game and all the history. And I love the game on the field. I, I, I'll never lose that passion, but I love the amateur game, as you know, we'll talk about. I also love all the ways that baseball touches culture. And, and to have those opportunities in Cooperstown to tie into various aspects of the, of the game, whether it's uh, recognized baseball's role during World War II to uh, you know, honoring the legends of Bull Durham, inducting, fake inducting Homer Simpson into the Hall of Fame. The point is, is that baseball permeates culture. And to have that opportunity for so many years to be a part of that, to me, was incredibly rewarding. Jeff, uh, in Major League Beginnings, it has a lot to do with first. And I think it's, it's fabulous to be able to reach back in that memory and remember your first. Do you remember that first ceremony? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember, I mean, my first day with the Hall of Fame was induction day 94, uh, when Phil Rizzuto uh, and Leo DeRocher were, were elected to the Hall of Fame. Bob Murphy won the, the Frick Award. And I just remember sitting there and standing there wondering what, what I was doing. What, you know, I thought, I thought being at uh, opening day at Yankee Stadium was bigger old timers day. And it was <laughs> when you had guys like DiMaggio and Mantle and you know, the scooter and all these guys around, but then you go to Cooperstown and it's like all of them are there. It's like you went to heaven and you're alive. So yeah, I remember it very well. You know, we watch these guys get up there and many of the players will say delivering that speech is far more nerve wracking than playing in front of 50,000 people uh, and having to produce on the, on the grandest stage in the game for you. That's when we look at you and you look like Joe cool. Like, all right, it's off my plate. It's on these guys to deliver. <laughs> Give us an idea, though, of how crazy it really gets uh, behind the scenes. Oh, it does. I mean, for these guys, it's not like giving a it's not like giving a speech at your locker, Mark, after a game win or loss. I mean, it's like summing up your entire career. And for a lot of these guys, they don't realize that it doesn't really set in their careers over until they're up there giving this speech. I mean, it, you know, it's, for a lot of them, their first ballot electees, it's only been five years, and then. Uh, here I am. And all of a sudden you got 50,000 people in front of you and you got 50 guys that are just as good if you have not, or not better behind you. And that's when the knees start to knock. And then you look down, they look down, they see their, their, their family, their spouse, their children, their parents, and you know, they start to crumble and realize the enormity of the moment. And, you know, I've, I've told them all, look, if you don't get up there and cry, you're not human. I mean, you're going to cry. And, you know, Nolan Ryan kind of looked at me cross-eyed, but you know, he shed a couple of tears as well. And you know, Ken Griffey Jr., we ended up having to deliver tissues. And um, the speech is a big deal to these guys. And uh, it, it's, the, it's the, the, the final icing on the top of the cake. Uh, being around a couple Hall of Famers, uh, Big Hurt, Frank Thomas comes to mind. Also, uh, Jeff Bagwell, who we've had on. And also Trevor Hoffman. Uh, that speech is a daunting one. Uh, is there any crazy stories that you remember uh, that one in particular comes out? I don't know if there's anything too, too daunting. I mean, probably the worst I felt was, and we prepared for this, was in 98. Way back in 1998, Lee McPhail went up and went to the podium, the American League president. His dad was in the Hall of Fame, Larry McPhail. Andy works for the Phillies. And he gets up there, and he's about 80, and he's got his jacket on, and he does this, and then he does this, and then he realizes, <laughs> I don't know, uh -oh. it's my speech with me. And poor Lee, I felt so badly. 
uh, you know, but he managed to get through it. Probably the most emotional one. They're all emotional, as I mentioned. George Brett gave a great speech about thinking he was the worst of all of his brothers. You know, Kemmer was a first round pick in 67. Uh, you know, Phil Necro talked about his dad coming out of the coal mines and playing catch with his sister and him. But the enormity of it, of it all really culminated with Bill Mazeroski in 2001, who, by the way, grew up about 10 miles away from uh, both Phil Necro and John Havlicek, Mark, who I know you know, wow. yeah. a Celtics fan up in Blaine, Ohio. Uh, but Bill got up there and he said, you know, I'm so glad to be here. And then he broke down into tears for a solid minute and a half, got a standing ovation, never uttered a word, and was so taken by the enormity of it all, he couldn't deliver a speech. And, and for many fans, that said it all. Yeah, it does. And you know what? Uh, talking to some of these Hall of Famers after the speech is done, it has to be a, a, just a breath of fresh air. And a lot of them talk about uh, that dinner that they have back at the hotel, this beautiful setting, and they get to sit at different tables and have a dinner with the other Hall of Famers. Speak to us of, of your, uh, your perspective of that room and how it all works. Yeah, Mark, it's like being in the clubhouse or, you know, it's like being, it's, it's being at a pregame meal and except it's just all the players are in there, all the Hall of Famers. Um, Commissioner was in there, Commissioner Seelig for many years and then Rob the last couple of years. I'm, I was fortunate enough to be in there as well. Yeah, and they break themselves into the groups. It's not by team. It's not necessarily by age. It's like you've got the hitters table, the power hitters table. You've got the pitchers table. Then there's a wine, like a wine table because there are wine guys. And then there's like your middle infielders table. And then, you know, poor Joe Morgan, may he rest in peace, is sort of caught between the power hitting table and the middle <laughs> infielder table because he had 250 home runs or whatever the number was, most by a second baseman until Rhino came along. So, yeah, it's uh, they have their places and they know where they belong. And uh, there's some ribbing that goes on with the with the current guys. In fact, uh, I'll give you one brief story of, uh, you know, Frank Thomas. You mentioned Big Hurt was uh, talking about, you know, he, he couldn't stop thanking people in his speech. And uh, you got into that room and Andre Dawson stands up with the Cooperstown phone book and says, I think you forgot a few people. <laughs> get a lot of that that goes on but all in good all in good fun so a few of the things we learned one you don't use a teleprompter out there apparently because then you don't have to worry about losing your speech maybe look at that your next term should you ever go back to the hall and two <laughs> we always figured they're wearing sunglasses because it's so bright out but it turns out they're hiding the tears yeah did, they really are did not know that you know what for those fans who've had a chance to go to induction weekend obviously you know how special it is for most of us myself included i've not been to an induction weekend but i have been to the hall of fame um from your perspective there must be something beyond the plaques and the uh the the world series rings for example that you think might be a hidden gem what can you tell our listeners hey when you go to cooperstown this in my impression is is a can't miss yeah, you know, Mike. What's interesting? It's a great call. And what's interesting is that a lot of a lot of fans go to Cooperstown thinking they're just going to see the plaques, and obviously, there's much more than that. It's a fifty thousand square foot museum with, you know, the entire history of baseball in it. And the other thing most fans think is they're going to uh, uh, that, that know that it's beyond the plaques. Think they're going to find the past, and invariably, you find your own past. You find things that relate to your own childhood, and. Um, there seems to be, there's an uncanny ability for there to be something for everybody in that museum. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the fun artifacts I remember getting were, uh, for instance, I talked to Arlene Howard, Elston Howard's widow for years about getting El Elston's uniform in the hall of fame. He was the first, uh, African-American to play for the Yankees. And that was, that was important for me, uh, and for them, I think to have that there. 
uh, Harry Carey, when he passed away, I asked Dutchie about his glasses. He's known for those big glasses, and Dutchie thought they belonged in Cooperstown. And I guess it's it's items like that, artifacts that help uh, fans recreate with uh, recreate and connect with their own past. Well, you certainly served with honor, uh, as we said, 25 years at the Hall, 11 of them as the president. You left the Hall in 2019, and then you, along with renowned photographer Gene Fruth, have been really busy on a brand new project and we're excited as can be to share it with everybody because we think if fans can get their hands on this project they are going to be enlightened uh, in ways i can't describe so gene we're so thrilled you're able to join us today as well and uh i gotta ask you right out of the gate what is the genesis of this grassroots baseball project that you're working on with jeff when I was traveling, uh, shooting the professional game around the world, I always took time to shoot the amateur game. And that's, that's my personal love is the amateur game, the grassroots game. So if I was in Japan shooting the World Baseball Classic, I would find a little league game in Tokyo to shoot. Or if I was in Texas, I might find a high school game. And um, it goes on and on. The Dominican Republic, while I shoot winter league, I take a day to also find baseball in San Pedro de Macorís, which obviously is not hard to find. Um, and that collection of images was really never seen. It was a personal project, and it was just the love of the amateur game. In New York City, I shot old guys playing stickball on the streets of New York uh, in, in Harlem. Um, so then during my tenure with the Baseball Hall of Fame as their traveling photographer, I had a chance to meet many of the Hall of Famers during induction, special projects, taking portraits of them, um, visiting them at their homes and doing portraits there and hearing all their great stories of what it was like growing up and wherever they, they came from, wherever their early days of baseball started. And I loved the stories. And, you know, living in San Francisco and shooting the Oakland A's, I you know had many chances to hear Ricky Henderson tell me great stories about growing up in Oakland. And I thought, how fun would it be to pair these images with these legends and their stories of growing up? Everybody knows their playing days so well, but what about the early days in Don Gregorio for Vladimir Guerrero or Whitey Ford in New York City, you know, getting started and, and, and how he got his start? So that's how grassroots baseball where legends begin came about. So that's the book. But if I understand this right, it's so much more than the book. And, and don't worry out there. You're listening. You're going to get intrigued. You're going to want to pick up a copy of this book. We're going to have all those details for you. But Jeff, tell us more about how you married the idea of the book to what I understand are these fantastic, almost a barnstorming effect with, with clinics and working with Hall of Famers and former players. Well, it's really interesting, uh, Mike, because Jean's, you know, Jean's book had been incredibly well-received last year. She was holding book signings around the country, donating proceeds back to youth baseball, and she wanted to do more and approached me with the idea of turning grassroots baseball into a program to celebrate the amateur game around the globe with a focus of growing interest and participation through the clinics. And she suggested launching this program and launching it along Route 66 since it's a part of our nation's fabric, just like baseball. And here I am getting ready to retire from the Hall of Fame last year. And I, I loved her idea. But at that point, Mike, all I wanted to do was sit on a beach for five months. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and you know that being in San Diego. And well, five months quickly became five minutes because the next thing I know, Jean's calling me to say she's found an RV. She signed up sponsors. And all of a sudden, <laughs> here I am trying to navigate the streets of Chicago in an RV. Well, Gene, uh, I'll start with you because this this project is fascinating. And 
if you're a baseball player and everyone loves action shots, uh, but the the way you present this book is tremendous because uh, it, it just you relive all of those moments that you had as a youth. And it takes you all the way through. But you also understand the enormity of what baseball has in all of our lives. Uh, what was the fascinating aspect with you when you were going through all of these different subjects and different areas of baseball? Yeah, baseball, well, just to go to Jeff's point for a minute, when he said he was navigating the streets of Chicago, just for full disclosure, Jeff drove the RV the entire time. I never got behind the wheel. Now, <laughs> Back to answering your question, <laughs> did you all driving? Uh, the the fascinating part for me, yes, action is exhilarating, and I love shooting action, and I continue to shoot action. But baseball is so much more than that, and it's the people, the places, and it's connecting generations, and that's what I love about the game. I love that baseball looks different in different places. You can see Cape Cod looks very different than New York City. The Dominican Republic looks very different than Texas. And that's, it's telling the stories that I find interesting. And when you look at the book, I, probably the biggest compliment that I had, and it's what I, I want to achieve is the sense of place and showing what that looks like. What does baseball look like in Mobile, Alabama? And uh, Hank Aaron was kind enough to write his story um, for what it was like growing up in Mobile and what a story it was. And, um, when I presented the book to Hank, he opened the Mobile chapter and went through it and said, wow, this is really Mobile. This is bringing back, and it was bringing back memories for him. And to me, that was the ultimate compliment, just when someone can see that and they know, and it brings back memories of their childhood and it brings them right back to where they were. And, and it's, baseball looks different in different places. That's one of the things that jumped out to me, and I felt like Mark and I both feel the same way, is the layout of this book is extraordinary. Would it be unfair to call this a coffee table book, or does that just date me as how old I am? No, no. no okay. This book is coffee table book as much as possible because they're becoming extinct. So let's yeah. Okay, so it's not, and by the way, I appreciate your being delicate with me right there because I know I'm getting to be a dinosaur, but 250 <laughs> fabulous images. And as you pointed out, Gene, the layout is spectacular because it takes you around the globe uh, in ways you can't afford, frankly, to go. So we're going to get to live vicariously through you and all of your hard work and these essays that precede each chapter, as you pointed out, Hank Aaron with Mobile, Alabama. I thought Ichiro's essay, uh, learning to appreciate the gloves and tools that his parents bought for him and, and respect the game the way he did before you talk about uh, the game in Japan. It's extraordinary as you walk us through the globe. And I think that's going to be, to me, what resonates the most is seeing the way, regardless of economic status, People enjoy this game and the sport, guys, brings people together in a way that I don't know any other game does. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Mike. I mean, it's multi-generation. I think about the first time I went to Fenway Park, it was with my grandparents and my parents. And as you'll see through, as you see in Gene's book, I mean, it's very much a connecting of the generations. You know what, guys, also, uh, Gene, and you might be able to, to mention this too. There's two uh, factors. You already mentioned Cape Cod League, which uh, I got to play, and I was fortunate enough to play three different times. And you showed the Chatham Fog coming in. Um, the pictures were, uh, it brought me back. 
Um, the Cape Cod League, especially with that, because it, it had influence on that. For example, in 1988, my first year there when I was in Chatham, uh, Jeff Bagwell was there and also Frank Thomas, two MVPs in baseball. Also, they had uh, over 20 Major League Baseball players in that particular year that had over eight to 10 years of service time in the big leagues. So the impact of what that league had, um, you showcased in a, a brilliant manner. Also that, that comes to mind, and I think all of us love this, uh, the Williamsport, Pennsylvania, mm. and the, the Little League World Series. Uh, immediately when you turn the page and you see Williamsport, Pennsylvania, uh, it puts a smile on everyone's face that enjoys the game of baseball. Uh, speak to those aspects as well. It really, uh, it does, um, each chapter is special in that way. I mean, Williamsport, Pennsylvania is a great one for me. And um, I was in Japan shooting the World Baseball Classic and reached out to uh, Little League in Tokyo and said, love to shoot some games. And it ended up being their opening day, which was phenomenal. So I went to their um, opening ceremony and got to shoot that. And they had me choose a game. And I and they gave me two or three choices. I chose the one closest to my hotel because I also had to shoot a game that night and I just logistics of, of getting around. And so that was the game I chose. And it was an amazing game, shot it. And fast forward um, to uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania in August. Um, and I'm shooting the parade, the opening parade before uh, the Little League World Series. And I'm walking, waiting for the parade to start, trying to find a background that's going to be interesting. And I keep hearing my name. And you know, when you're having a large crowd and did I hear my name or didn't I? And I turn <laughs> and there's all these Japanese fans in this section and they're all waving saying, Gene, Gene. How is this happening and who are they? So I walk over gingerly to see if it is me that they're, they're calling. And they said, remember us? And it was the parents from that game that, wow. I, that I shot back in March. And I said, what are you doing here? And they said, we made it to the Little League World <laughs> Series. So I shot that team's very first opening day game and they ended. Then I shot all the games in Williamsport to the end for the two weeks. And who wins the Little League World Series that year but that Japanese team. So I shot their very first game and their very last game of the season. And it was just beyond cool and so great. And then an artifact, wasn't an artifact, I believe, from uh, from that game went to the Hall of Fame, didn't it, Jeff? I it think. Did, yeah. We catcher, got it. Maybe the yeah. catcher. Uh, yeah, the catcher's glove for, oh no, it's Jersey. I think it's Jersey. Anyway, that's a great story. And, uh, and those are the stories. And you see, I mean, Williamsport, there's nothing like that baseball. It's really before money and contracts get involved. It's just the pure love of the game. And uh, there's just nothing better. It always happens when grown-ups get involved, right? That's when things start to spiral in a direction we don't necessarily want. I don't know how it is you guys pared this book down to 250 images because they are extraordinary, but it must have been an enormous task. I'm looking through this book. I happen to find my personal favorite. And I think everybody listening is going to find theirs uh, as well. Mine, and I don't know if you guys recall this, but mine's on page 53. And the reason I cite it ex uh, expressly is there are three little boys here. You're shooting in Mexico and they're in Dodger uniforms and they have the sweetest little expressions on their face. And you say how they're aspiring to be uh, Julio Urias, who one of the World Series heroes from the 2020 Dodger uh, team. But 
I'm moved page to page. You're in this, the two of you, knee deep and more. Gene, I'll start with you. Was there any particular area you visited that moved you in a particular way that you didn't anticipate? Uh, um, Mobile, Alabama is probably one of those places. Um, you know, most of the places in the book are hot spots of baseball. And you really couldn't say now that Mobile, Alabama is a hot spot of baseball, but it certainly was. Five Hall of Famers are from Mobile, Alabama. And that's, you know, quite a number for such a small place. And shooting there and seeing, uh, it's kind of the, you see the have and the have nots. Uh, uh, and, you know, that's what I feel like grassroots baseball is trying to accomplish now is giving play, giving young players an opportunity to play the game. And baseball is an expensive game, even at a young age. And things like travel ball, uh, you know, it, it it, does, it doesn't help the, to level the playing field. And in Mobile, Alabama, you can really see so much of players who really didn't have equipment and who didn't have, and so you don't have to go to the Dominican Republic or Cuba to see that. You can see it right here in the U.S. as well. And being able to, grassroots baseball, we're small and it's, you know, it's, it's a humble beginning, but we're really hopeful for its future. And it's being able to give a kid a new glove and, instruction and a new ball and you know that's all it takes you know and maybe they'll go out and play baseball instead of playing video games and that's what you want to see is healthy outcomes and um so mobile alabama moved me in a way because when i was shooting some high schools where they they didn't have enough money to even have a jersey in one high school and then you just go down the road a mile down and then there's a school where they have their away and their home uniforms and they've got beautiful manicured fields and lots of money and um, and sure, you don't need money. You need athletic ability. But there are a lot of athletic kids all over this country and all over the world that, you know, just with an opportunity um, can be playing the game and can play it, at the, you know, at the highest levels. How about you, Jeff? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, for me, I, my favorite part of the book or, or the big difference was Japan just because of the cultural differences and how vastly different it was. And I've always had a fascination with baseball in Japan. And, uh, you know, I was following Ichiro back when he played for Oryx. And to be over there and see just the difference in the culture, how, uh, you know, how regimented practices are, how uh, the, you know, the, the players deliver the lineup cards to the umpires versus the coaches, how they, all of the players line up and they bow to the umpire uh, in support before the game and after the game, the camaraderie and the seriousness. That to me showed a big difference from what we normally see in the United States. A uh, fabulous project. Um, Gene, uh, there's, there's endless opportunities here, right? Uh, so what's next? What's, what's going to become of uh, this series and also um, the challenges that this world is giving us right now uh, probably are challenges for you as well. What is going to uh, be next for you two? Well, we're having a great time uh, along Route 66 still. Uh, we had a chance to do clinics all along the route from Chicago to LA, as the song says. Uh, and now uh, we're going back to a lot of those regions and filling in. And we do have a second book coming out of Grassroots Baseball Route 66. And though COVID did slow everybody down, slowing us down really wasn't a bad thing for us in a lot of ways. We have a, a, a whole group of legends uh, along Route 66 who have written wonderful essays of what it was like growing up in those small towns. 
And, you know, just like baseball looks different from the Dominican Republic to Texas to Cape Cod to New York, baseball also looks different from Chicago to LA and all, all those little towns in between, a lot of small forgotten towns, Baxter Springs, Kansas, and um, just all these great places and people that we're meeting. And we're taking our time with it because we had no choice because of COVID, it slowed us down. But the essays that we got from the legends just been terrific because people had time to think about it and write them. And um, I think we got a real quality product. And then we worked on grassroots baseball. We're now officially a not-for-profit and we got that accomplished. So slowing down um, wasn't so bad for us. And, uh, and we've had a lot of fun with the Americana along the way. We've been to places. I don't know if you've ever been to the Rattlesnake Museum in New Mexico. But <laughs> I did. That gives you like the world's largest ball of twine. Haven't seen, <laughs> haven't seen that either. Jeff, you're going to let Gene drive the bus a little bit next time you get through uh, Route 66? I, I don't know. I do have to correct Gene. I hope you don't mind. I do have to correct you because I didn't drive the entire way. I drove almost the entire way. Uh, we did have one, one uh, episode, if I can call it, in Amarillo, Texas, uh, when the, uh, the the Padres, the Double A affiliate, now the now I guess the uh, Rockies double or the Diamondbacks Double A affiliate, but yep. we brought Trevor Hoffman in to do a clinic uh, with, with the sod poodles, and here we are at the at the downtown Marriott, and he's like, "Oh my, look at this RV! This I got to buy one of these. Uh, Tracy and I want to buy an RV. Can I drive it?" So here he is in full uniform, driving like a mile to the RV down to the ballpark, but. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And the, the guys who helped us with clinics, you know, just they, they, they rang true in these communities at these boys and girls clubs, guys like Jim Tomey, Goose Gossage was our national spokesman last year. Uh, Billy Hatcher, who grew up in Williams, Arizona, right on 66, Ozzy Smith, George Brett, uh, all did wonderful clinics. Jo Johnny Bench, I don't know how to explain it, Gene, you could probably explain it better, but it's almost like the, the second coming of Elvis in Oklahoma. I mean, there's nobody hmm. more popular than Bench. Yeah, it's an extraordinary project that you're working on. Grassroots Baseball is the name of it. Uh, and Gene and Jeff, you guys have done a wonderful job with the first of what we hope are even more books. I don't put the spotlight on Gene because she'll be under pressure to turn out more photos. But we know you're working on a second book. But that first one, folks, is out there right now. It's called Grassroots Baseball, where legends begin. It's all around the globe. The finest images from an award-winning photographer in Gene Fruth. You have got to check this out. If you'd like some more information, maybe you'd like to to purchase a copy, purchase a bunch of them. It's a great time of year to do it. It's a beautiful hardcovered coffee table book, as I'm allowed to say. <laughs> 250 images. You can check out their website at grassrootsbaseballbook.com. We, Mark and I and Barry, will also have their information on our website, majorleaguebeginnings.com. It might be the best money you spend on yourself or your favorite baseball fan. I've got to say, in some time, it's extraordinary. And we cannot thank the two of you enough for coming on the podcast with us. Oh, it's our pro it's our pleasure, Mike. And I, you know, maybe you have to call it a cold brew coffee table in this, this, this era. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Well, Jeannie, thanks a bunch. Gene Fruth, Jeff Idelson, Grassroots Baseball is the project. Thanks again. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, fun. Thanks, Mike and Mark. Folks, thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.